Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. In Scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her. And that in an instant, from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind. She wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. EverStory is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation, told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16:15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find EverStory wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow Doxology Bible Church on Facebook or Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story or know someone who might? Send us an email to stories at doxology.church. Because everyone has a story. Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. We've been studying in the book of Romans. Uh, We started in Romans chapter 1. It was pretty bad news. So we thought it'd get better. Uh, We studied Romans 2. It was really bad news. Last week we started Romans 3, hoping it would get better. Bad news. But, today... We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and the news finally gets good. If you're a guest, let me catch you up on where we've been. Um, We have said that the book of Romans is like reading a great courtroom novel. It's like looking into the courtroom when all of humanity is on trial. And the bad news is like this. Paul, who's writing the letter, calls all of humanity up to the stand. 
and he announces about all humanity, you, me, your mom, your sister, your brother, your neighbor, the person across the planet, every single one of us, anybody who's a member of humanity, is guilty. And then he goes on to show us that it's not just that we're guilty, it's worse than that. Uh, we're guilty and we have no excuse, we have no appeal, we have no chance at parole. Because what we have done is a capital offense. Every single one of us in front of the God of the universe deserves death. And it's our fault. We're guilty. We're without excuse. So he opens up Romans and he says, God has created everything that's out there to demonstrate that he is God. And we have rejected it. He says he's not just put what's out there as evidence that he exists. He's also put something inside each and every one of us to point that he exists. And that's this moral code that's inside of us that all of us make decisions that aren't just a result of biology. We make decisions based on right and wrong. And sometimes those decisions are contrary to just instinct or biology. And that should show us that there's a creator God who is just and who is good and who is holy. And yet the problem, the bad news about that is that every single one of us have knowingly, willingly, intentionally disobeyed what our conscience, that inward moral code told us to do. We're guilty. So we have fabricated religions we have created rules to try to keep us in line so that we wouldn't be that bad. The problem with that, as Paul said in Romans 2, is we break those. We're guilty. We're without excuse. And then last week we saw the closing arguments in the case. And Paul threw the book at us, every single one of us. He said, not only are you guilty, not only are you without excuse, you're not even good. There is no hope for any of us on our own. If God's the standard of goodness, then all of us fall so drastically short, we're all without hope and without excuse. Paul wrote in verse 20 of chapter 3, we can't get out of this mess that we've created for ourselves. And that's how we ended last week, with bad news. The bad news that we're guilty the bad news is that at the end of the closing statement, the jury and the judge and every person in the courtroom has to stand up and realize that we are guilty, there is no contest, we're without excuse. And that's bad news because we've seen that bad news, guilt, without excuse, means we're worthy of death. We deserve the death sentence. We deserve to be executed for our crime against the God of the universe. And that's bad news because we're guilty. And that's where we left it last week. Guilty, no excuse, no chance at parole, no chance of getting better on our own. And we walked out of here like dead men and dead women walking. This church must have, might as well have been turned into death row. Because all of us is guilty. That brings us to the passage that we're going to talk about today. Beginning in verse 21. Paul's finished up his closing arguments. We all know that we're guilty. There won't be any more trial. We're without excuse. And Paul writes this. 
Read the very first two words out loud with me. Verse 21, but now. No, 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 no. You've got you to read it like Paul wrote it. And maybe you're not understanding the gravity of the situation. The situation is this. We are on death row. Guilty. We are without excuse. There is no parole. We just stand in the courtroom and wait for the judge to announce the sentence that all of us deserve to die and to spend eternity separated from him for what we've done, the way that we've lived, and who we are. And Paul gets to Romans chapter 3, 21, when all of us expect the verdict, and he says what words? But now. See, In this context, in this situation, the very first word that begins Romans chapter 3 verse 21 is the greatest word in the Bible. You might think about that. What is the greatest word in the Bible? Well, maybe it's God. Well, yeah, that's a great word, but it's not a great word for us if it's not for the but. Because God is the righteous judge who is holy and just and righteous and we are not. That's not good news. You might think that the right word, the best word is justice, and yet we realize that all of us live unjust lives, and that justice means that we would go into a Christless eternity for the rest of our life. That's not good news. In the context of Romans chapters 1 through 3, the greatest word in the Bible is this word, but. Because this word, but, serves as the bridge between hopelessness and hope between guilt and forgiveness, between what is earned and what is given, the whole basis of the Christian faith hinges on this word, but. The whole reason we can get out of bed in the morning without fear of death is bound up in this word. And in fact, the whole book of Romans pivots on this word as well. We've spent two and a half chapters talking and looking in our, in our inner soul in the mirror And we've seen that it's not a pretty picture. But. We've seen that we're guilty, that we're without excuse. But. What Paul begins to give us in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 is hope. And he will unpack it throughout the rest of the book. The greatest message, the greatest story in the world hinges on the greatest word in the Bible. And that word is, but. So look on at what it is that Paul says as he announces what the judge has decided to do with our guilt. Look again at verse 21. Paul's writing and he says this, But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Righteousness is a legal word. It means right standing in the eyes of the law. It's not the same thing as innocence. We've already seen from this whole passage, we're not innocent, we're guilty. And yet, there is a righteousness that's available from God. And right off the bat, Paul points to something that is really, really important not to get goofed up, and that's this. There is a difference between righteousness for God and righteousness from God. There is a huge difference between righteousness for God and righteousness from God. It's the difference between religion and righteousness. See, 
If we're not careful, we can get into this idea where we live our lives and try to do righteousness for God. And we become performers in the Christian life, trying to do enough righteousness for God so that God will applaud. Paul's already shown us that's a problem in light of Romans 1 through 3. We can't do enough righteousness for God to applaud because God is a righteous judge and we are unrighteous people. We can't do righteousness for God. And yet, we have crafted elaborate religions and elaborate rule systems and elaborate systems to try to get people to fall in line and do better and to behave differently. The self-help section in the bookstore is filled with books. How we can try to do more righteousness for God. The problem is there's a difference between righteousness for God and a righteousness from God. There are two problems with doing righteousness for God. The first one is, it insinuates that we're really not that bad. We make mistakes from time to time. There are these momentary indiscretions in our life. I mean, there are times that we make some mistakes, but really at our core, we're not that bad, right? Well, Romans 1 to 3 said, now that's actually wrong. I mean, if the guy sitting next to you is the standard for goodness, then you're probably not so bad. Unfortunately, God is the standard of goodness, in which case all of us fall desperately short of the standard. One of the problems of righteousness for God is that it says that we're just really not that bad, which Romans 1 to 3 says is just simply not true. The other problem is that it says God's really not that good. That standard that God has set, that holiness that God is, I can get there. I just need to try harder. I just need to work smarter. I can get to that standard. I can obey better. I can work better. I can try harder. Paul's also said, that's just simply not true. His standard is perfect. His righteous standard is completely unattainable by us. We can't do enough righteousness for God. We need righteousness from God. God demands religious performers it's bad news because we've already seen how we measure up to a standard. We need good news, not bad news. And the good news is found in verse 21. There is righteousness from God. He says says it's revealed in the law and the prophets. See, the good news is not new news. The good news has been revealed all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We see God is going to figure out a way to deal with the sin issue. And yet, through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all the way through Joshua and the judges and the prophets, we don't know exactly how it is that God will accomplish this. We just know that he will. But now, we know how he will and how he has. And Paul tells us, look at verses 22 to 26. Paul tells us how, he, how God has accomplished this righteousness from God. He says this, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. 
This passage tells us several things about the way that God has accomplished this and what it means to us. Let me give you just a couple of the small ones and then I'll give you the overall point of what Paul's trying to say. The first thing that he says, and he says it in verse 22, is that this righteousness from God is universally available. It's universally available. It says the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to who? All who believe. And this is huge, is it not? I was out taking a walk in my neighborhood the other day, and one of my neighbors uh, saw me, and he knows I'm a pastor. He'd seen this 2020 special on Islam. Did you see uh, this, this special on Islam? And he was really, really concerned uh, and, and had a question for me as a pastor because these people were such nice people that got interviewed. And it's the people that they talked to were such nice, sweet people. And he said, you know, I just can't imagine with 1.5 billion Muslims in the world that God would be serious if he's loving and send all of those people to a Christless eternity. That seems so exclusive. And fortunately, I had been studying this passage and remembered this verse, and I said, no, 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 no. See, the, the thing is, Christianity is the only belief system that is inclusive the righteousness that's available to how many? To all who believe. And in fact, when you start to look at the rest of religion, I can't keep the five pillars of faith. I can't even remember the five pillars of faith. Neither could the people on that special, if you remember. I can't keep the rules. That's what Romans 1 to 3 said. I can't behave well enough to do righteousness for God. In fact, every other religion out there excludes me. I could never work my way to God. I need God to work his way to me. I could never do enough righteousness for God. I need righteousness from God. And Christianity is the only inclusive religion because it's the only one that provides exactly what we need, and that's a savior. Righteousness from God. It's universally available. Verse 24 says that we are justified, which literally means declared righteous, freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How much does this justification cost us? It's free, right? He says it three different ways. He says it, one, he says uh, we're justified freely, that's one, by his grace. Grace, that word for grace could also be translated a gift. How much does a gift cost? If it costs you something, you're not invited to my birthday party. <clears throat> Gifts are free, and then he goes on to say it comes freely through his grace, through the redemption which came by Jesus Christ. To redeem means to purchase by paying a price. It's a gift that costs us nothing. It was paid for by somebody else, and that's really important. You know, um, as humans, we have a hard time with free stuff, partly because we attribute worth to cost. So if you want some clothes that are really, really nice clothes that are worth a lot, you've got to pay a whole lot of money for them. If you want to stay at a nice hotel, you're going to pay quite a bit of money for that nice hotel and, because it's worth something. And so we attribute worth and cost and then just don't like free things because we feel like they are worthless. They didn't cost anything. That's why when you get mail that has on the envelope free gift inside, you don't even open it. You just throw it in the trash can because you know it's junk. It's free. That's not worth anything. Throw it in the trash. Somebody gives you a free book. You just put it on the bookshelf. You don't ever read a free book because if nobody's willing to pay for it, yeah, what, how good can it be? We don't like free stuff. But Paul wants to make it really clear that we understand something about this free thing that God has given us. 
He goes on to say uh, in verse 25 something about this gift. It says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. See, this isn't just a cheap gift. This isn't just a token from God. It's free to us, but it's not cheap for God. It cost Jesus his life. This word in verse 25, the sacrifice of atonement, is a really cool word. Uh, in, if you're a Bible scholar, you like to read your Bible, it, it says in Hebrews 9, it uses this word to refer to the mercy seat which was the place in the Old Testament where uh, the people that traveled around with the tabernacle, they would sacrifice an animal for their sins and they would take the blood and pour it out on the, on the mercy seat. Symbolic of saying, uh, I'm trusting that this blood will cover up my sins. And that's what happened in the Old Testament is God allowed their sins to be covered for an amount of time. And yet the way that Paul uses it is a lot stronger than that. It's not just a covering for sin. If you have a King James Bible or a New American Standard Bible, it translates, rather than sacrifice of atonement, it translates it with this really great word that's lots of fun to impress your friends with. The word propitiation. And not only is propitiation a whole lot of fun to say, not only is it really fun to impress your friends with, it's a really powerful word because the word propitiation means satisfactory payment. And what Paul's saying here is that when Jesus Christ died, he made a payment to God that was satisfactory, that God is satisfied through the death that Jesus Christ died, satisfied for you and for me and for your mom and for your neighbor. He made a death, he, he died and made a payment to God that was satisfactory for the sins of the entire world, and it cost him his life. Righteousness, salvation is free to us. But it's not cheap to God. It cost him his son. It cost Jesus his life. And that's the kind of gift that we like to receive, is it not? I mean, we like stuff that's expensive. We just want somebody else to pay for it and give it to us for nothing. That's exactly the kind of gift that we have in righteousness. Jesus Christ paid for it with his life. It's free to us, but not cheap for God. And that changes everything about the Christian life, doesn't it? To know that Jesus Christ made a satisfactory payment for you and for I. That means if you've been walking around, you've trusted Jesus Christ, taken righteousness from God, and you've been walking around beating yourself up for something that you did long in the past, if you are walking around with guilt and shame having trusted Jesus Christ, but having these things in your life that you just can't leave behind, you're making a statement that Jesus Christ's death was not really satisfactory, not for you. You've got to beat yourself up. You've got to make yourself pay just a little bit more. Paul says that's not the gospel. He sent Jesus Christ as the satisfactory payment. See, when we get to the gate of heaven, if God was to ask us, why should I let you in? The answer isn't, well, I tried to live a good life. We've already seen that in Romans 1 to 3. We don't live a good life. Not if God's the standard of goodness. But the answer also isn't, you know, um, I trusted Jesus, but I've tried to keep the rules. Uh, I've trusted Jesus, and I've given lots of money. I've trusted Jesus, and I really beat myself up over that stuff that I did in the past. That's not it. Jesus didn't die to be your part savior. Jesus Christ died and made a satisfactory payment to God 
on our behalf. The only answer that's acceptable to God is this. I've trusted Jesus as the full and satisfactory payment, and I can't trust anything else. It's free to us, but it's not cheap for God. And that's hard for us, isn't it? I mean, it feels like there ought to be something that we can do to chip in. Feels like there ought to be something that we could do to pay God back. And so this is how it works. We trust Christ and then we say, you know, uh, God, thanks for the gift. I'm going to, um, I'm going to do, a, here's what I'll do. I'll give you 15 minutes every day. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. I'll do spiritual stuff for 15 minutes just kind of to pay you back a little bit for the gift that you gave me. So I'll be obligated to that and thanks for the gift. Or we say, you know, uh, here's what we'll do. We'll go to church once every week. We'll go to church once every couple of weeks. We'll go to church twice a week. God, thanks for the gift. This is what we're going to do to kind of pay you back. Because this is too, too big a gift. That we just got to chip in something. And we fail to realize what an offense that must be to the giver of the gift. It would be as if you took everything you had, your entire life savings, and you put it together, and you went out and bought me a house. For no reason other than that you just love me. And it's an extravagant, luxurious house that you have furnished with the greatest stuff that you could possibly put in this home. And you come to me and say, Chris, this is yours. It's a gift because I love you. It would be like me saying to you, well, no, thanks. But, I mean, that's too much. Here's what I'll do. I'll wash your car. Then we'll be even. Or if I started to think about it and said, you know, that's a pretty extravagant gift you gave me. It must have cost you a lot of money. And the taxes and stuff are going to be a lot. Here's what I'll do. Let, let me give you a couple of bucks. That'll cover it, right? How offended would you be? And then what I would do is when I had other people over to my nice, luxurious house, here's what I'd say. I'd say, well, um, thanks, you know, for saying nice stuff about my house. You know, Bob and I went in on this thing together. I washed his car. How offended would you be as a giver of a gift if I tried to pay you back with some measly amount? You'd be offended for a couple of reasons. Number one, I've totally missed the point of the gift. It's in the mind of the giver to discern how valuable the gift is that he gives to another person. You get to decide the extravagance of a gift, not me. But it would also deeply offend you to say, that I could pay you back, that I could go in with you on an extravagant gift and then to just give you some measly little payment. And yet, isn't that the thing that we do with righteousness? Don't we say to God, thank you for the gift. Now let me give you a tip. I mean, offering plates going by, let me give you a dollar or two. I mean, thanks for the righteousness. That was good. Isn't that what we do with righteousness? We see it as an obligation that we're just going to pay God back a little bit. And yet Jesus didn't die to be our part Savior that we could help pay back. We were justified freely by his grace and it cost Jesus Christ his life. It's an extravagant gift and that's great news. And it takes boasting completely out of the picture, doesn't it? Bragging went out the window and Chapters 1 to 3. Jesus is our only option for a satisfactory payment. We don't need to add to it. There's nothing that we can do to take the credit. That's where Paul goes. Look at verses 27 to 30. Where then is boasting? 
It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Where is boasting? See, if you got right with God, if you guys went in together, if you did it on your own, then you could brag about it. You could hold it over other people's heads. But you can't do that when righteousness is a gift. When righteousness is a gift, bragging goes out the window. I mean, think about it. How many of you at Christmas time decided that you would walk around the house after you opened your presents with your chest puffed out, bragging about what a great gift receiver you were? I mean, can you imagine? Did you see how I opened those golf clubs? I mean, I don't know if you saw how I handled the wrapping paper, but I'll let you know it was perfect. And they used double-sided tape. I mean, this was a hard thing for me to do. I might just be the very best gift receiver that ever graced this planet. I mean, you wouldn't do that. Who would do that? You don't get to boast as the receiver. You only get to boast in the giver. And that's the way that it is with righteousness. You can't boast as the receiver. You can just boast in the giver. We can't accept the credit. We can only accept the gift. Paul says we can't boast in our citizenship. We can't boast in the fact that we're Gentiles or Jewish. We can't boast in our upbringing, our status, whether we're rich or poor or white or black or yellow or red or purple. We're guilty, but God wants to give each of us an extravagant gift. We can't brag about that. You just take the gift. So then what's the point of the rules? That might be a question that you'd ask, and Paul answers that question. They're a constant reminder of the fact that we need a Savior. Look at verse 31. Paul asks the question himself, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Here's what he says. Was the law just a cheap trick that God gave that really is worthless at this point? Absolutely not. In fact, he uses that same word he's used the rest of Romans 3. Megornita. Absolutely not. Heck no. Objection overruled. When we trust Christ, he says we uphold the law. We fulfill the purpose for which the law was given. See, the law was never ever intended to be a source by which we would keep the rules and earn righteousness. It was always to point us out that we could never be righteous enough. The point of the law was not to get us to behave. It was that we would believe. God didn't intend that we would keep the rules and earn righteousness before him. He gave us the law. He gave us his standard as a perfect standard of his holiness so that every time we tried to keep it, we'd realize how drastically short we fall and we would turn in faith to the Savior and the righteousness that he has provided. He didn't give us the law just to behave. He gave us the law that we would believe. God knew we couldn't keep the rules. 
So he gave them to us as an ultimate object lesson to cause us to fall on our knees and worship the Savior who's provided righteousness from God. As Christ followers, should we keep the rules? Should we behave? Absolutely. But never, ever, ever to try to earn righteousness or make God pleased with us. He is satisfied in the payment that Jesus Christ made. We should obey. We should keep the rules. We should live holy lives out of gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done. We live holy lives because of gratitude for what God has done and what he's given and because every single day that we try to live Christ-like lives, we realize how impossible self-righteousness is. And every time we fall short, it drives our hearts and our minds back to the cross. We could never behave but that righteousness from God is available. That's the Christ-centered life that we're always talking about. It's not the life that is perfect. It's not the life that is completely innocent. It's the life that tries and tries out of gratitude and response to what God has done to show a Christ-like reflection to the rest of the world, but understanding that every time we fall short, it's a chance for us to fall to our knees and worship the Savior who paid a satisfactory payment for every time we fall short. That's what the Christ-centered life is all about. That every time we try to fix a habit or change a behavior or change an attitude and every time we fall short, it's not a chance for us to feel guilty. It's a chance for us to feel gratitude on behalf of what Jesus Christ has done and to turn in repentance and faith and say, God, thank you that your son paid for that. It wasn't cheap. It was free to me. And I want to spend the rest of my life reflecting that and honoring you out of gratitude, not out of obligation. The life that realizes that we could never be righteous, but God. It's the life that realized we could never behave, but now. It's the life that realizes we are not good. The words that come from our mouth reveal what's dead inside of us. The relationships that we leave in the past of broken homes and broken marriage and broken kids and broken promises and broken relationships with employers, that all of that God has paid for by accepting the, the, the sacrifice of his son. All of that stuff that we've done is what we deserved, but God. And the really, really great news for you, if you're sitting here today or if you're listening to this on the internet or on, on a CD and you're hearing these words, the really, really great news is that there is righteousness available from God. And if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as the satisfactory payment for your sins, you need righteousness. You need right standing before God because you're guilty. You know, it's quite possible that there are several of you sitting here or several of you hearing my voice who would say, you know what, I've believed in God my whole life. What's the big deal? I've believed in God my whole life. Well, what Paul has shown us is that simply believing in God is not enough. Listen to me. That would be like going into a courtroom after committing murder and standing before the judge expecting him to declare you innocent simply because you acknowledge that he's sitting on the bench. That's not good enough. And there may be people here today who have believed in God your whole life, but you never trusted the but. 
And what you need to hear today is that righteousness from God has been revealed. And it's through Jesus Christ as a gift that costs you absolutely nothing. And right where you sit, you could say a prayer to God that sounds something like this. God, I have tried for too long to perform for you. I've done righteousness for you, but in reality it hasn't been righteousness. It's fallen so far short. And today, at this moment, I'm trusting in righteousness from God, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Right where you sit, if that's the attitude of your heart, God promises he will give you right standing and that Jesus Christ's satisfactory payment applies to you. But this is also really important for those of you who have trusted Christ. If you've never trusted Christ and you did that this morning or you want to, to learn more about that, please don't leave this place without righteousness that comes from God. Our elders and their wives will be up here after the service. I'll hang around up here for a little while and we'd love to talk to you. Find somebody, if, just tell somebody if that's where you're at. If that person can't help you get started in the Christian life and what it looks like to live Christ-centered, both of you go find somebody who can because it's far too important. But if you trusted Christ a long time ago, this gospel is good news for you and I too. Because it means that in the face of broken homes and broken marriages and broken promises and broken situations and broken workplaces and broken hearts, that we can have hope because hope doesn't depend on us. Hope depends on the gracious gift that our God has given to us through his son Jesus Christ is a free gift that costs us absolutely nothing. And that every single day that we live in brokenness and we realize that we're unrighteous, broken people, through the power of the Spirit we can turn to God and thank him for the good news of the gospel. That it's a gift that's already paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to pay for it any longer. And that's something to worship about. See, we can go into this week as people who have righteousness from God with a posture of worship. Living lives that reflect and respond to what it is that Jesus Christ has done. So that's what we want to do in the next couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to try to kickstart our week responding to what it is that Jesus Christ has done. There are lots of ways to worship. Music is one of them. But music is such a powerful language to be able to respond to God with the attitude of our heart saying, thank you for an extravagant gift that although I was unrighteous, although I was guilty, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. Although I was an outcast and separated from God and headed into a Christless eternity, I'm accepted. But it came at a cost to you, God. You were condemned. Today, I am alive and well. Your spirit lives within me. I can live a life with a new identity, with new hope, with a new outlook because Jesus Christ died and rose again. We're going to worship together as we close. Let's pray together. Amazing love, God, how can it be that the king, the righteous judge, the giver of life would die for me? God, every single one of us in here was guilty. Every single one of us in here deserved death. To be separated from you for all of eternity. But, but you sent your son, infinitely God, 100% God, 100% man, who could make an infinite payment for us. And you have paid it all. 
Lord, we are weak. We're without strength. We can't do enough righteousness for you, but this morning, we're going to celebrate the righteousness from you. As we sing and as we go into this week, Lord, we pray that we live lives of hope, not trying to pay you back, but realizing that Jesus Christ has paid it all. Our sin left a crimson stain, and yet you washed it completely white as snow. Not guilty, righteous, justified. Thank you, Father, for amazing love. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.